Welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the podcast that pits Jane Austen against all three Bronte sisters and for the month of September pits Frances Hodgson Burnett against any author we can think of who might have written something that is similar to this book, The Shuttle. <laughs> I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, Team Austen. And I am your other host, Lauren Burke, Team Bronte, but also Team Burnett. Yes, me also. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm not sure if she's going to agree, but yeah, okay, good. I agree. <laughs> all right. All right, book. It's fine. Okay. All right. So last week, I promised you romance, didn't I? Steamy, sexy romance. Okay. I didn't not say steamy or sexy. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. You said not immediately sexy. Not immediately. Okay. There's like maybe one sexy bit, but okay. Here we go. Let's talk about the life of Frances Hodgson Burnett. Okay, so last week I left off with Eliza Hodgson, her mother, passing away. And Frances was supporting her family with her writing. And um, yeah, that was going um, really well. Really well. The writing was going yeah. really well. She's getting paid, I think at this point, uh, 15 or $35 per story, which is pretty good. But not as high as some male authors out there. Surprise, surprise. Uh, yeah. I yeah. mean, what's changed? Right. Exactly. So um, I'm just going to rewind a couple of years back to when the Hodgins initially moved to Tennessee. Remember that? So they moved mm -hmm. to New Market in that log cabin and their nearest neighbors were the Burnett family. And um, they became pretty well acquainted with the Burnett's because um the father, Dr. John Burnett, obviously a doctor and pretty much the only doctor for Wait, the miles Burnett around. Family. The Burnett family. Yes. I see where this is going. You see where this is going. Okay, there we go. So the Burnett family had a son and this son was named Swan Moses Burnett. <laughs> Quite the name. <laughs> What's well, funny if you go through like Francis and Swan's letters like later on throughout life, she's constantly calling him like other names. Do they have a Fron and Swan? That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Fron and Swan. So um so yeah, uh there's a son named Swan. Swan's just like a couple years older than Francis. Um now, when he was a kid, he suffered this really bad knee injury, which left him lame for life. Um, I know, right? Um, this actually kept him from serving in the Civil War. And also just and just pulling this from the bio as well. It said that, you know, it really kept him indoors and not really active and like out there with the other dudes. So he's an indoor cat. Yeah. Well, like all girl children. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so um, he and Francis pretty much uh, bond right away, um, mm -hmm. especially because they both share a love of literature. So she introduced him to a few friends of ours, uh, Dickens and Thackeray. Oh, the uh, real the real boyfriends of the show, Dickens and Thackeray. <laughs> right. move, over, move over, John Thornton. Dickens is in town. Right. Um. I have to say the Fran and Swan relationship really reminds me. Swan. Yeah, Fran and Swan. 
it reminds me of Joe and Lori from Little Women. Oh, really? Yeah, if you think about it, you know, they're neighbors, but the Burnettes are a little bit more well-off, and the Hodgins have these three girls at home. You know, there's Francis, there's Edith and Edwina. He's kind of coming over. They're writing stories, you know, plays, and, you know, just like in Little Women, like, I feel like he is, he, you know, has maybe more affection for Fran than she has for him. Um, you know, she's very adventurous and sort of like outgoing and she's dreaming of being rich and famous. Maybe not so much famous, but definitely rich. Yeah. <laughs> and wants to travel the world and whatnot. Like she she is very much like a real life Joe. And he is kind of just fulfilling his family's expectations and like training to be a doctor. Yeah. So he's not like putting it all out there. Yeah. So... Yeah, so he's he's pretty helplessly in love with Francis, and she's kind of like, meh, you know, I'm trying to do my own thing. So um, Eliza dies. Within two years of Eliza's passing, um, both of Francis's little sisters ended up getting married. So that's great. Mm-hmm. That really, like, frees her up so she can actually start doing the things that she wants to do. And at this point, Swan is like, hey, why don't we get married? But she's like, wait a minute. I really, really want to go back to England. I really want to travel. I'd really just want to like be my own person for a little bit. But guess what? I'm going to marry you when I get back. Okay. Which, no. Yeah, it's sensible, but also no one kind of believed it. Like everyone thought that she was just going to like go off to Europe and just never come back. Yeah, like that. See you later, sucker. Yeah, pretty much. So um, the first place she goes back to is Manchester. And she's hanging out in Manchester. She is supporting herself by uh, writing. She's still only writing for American publications. Okay. So while she's in Manchester, Frances starts this um, relationship with Swan via letters. And so those letters are kind of sexy. They're very sweet. And like, actually, she does um, later on, she does say that she falls in love with him via these letters, like during this time. So sort of like absence makes the heart go fonder, you know? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. So that's what happened here. So she's like, you know what? I am going to marry that swan boy. Now, while she's overseas, she orders a couture wedding dress from Paris. She decides to treat herself. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, she's been pretty poor for a really long time and, um, you know, taking care of her sisters. And Frances did like the finer things in life. And so this is like a big treat for her. Yeah. So she orders this dress. Then she gets on a boat. She goes back to America. And um, sadly, she ends up beating the dress there. Well, she didn't use Amazon Prime, did she? Mm-mm. She didn't. She didn't. So, um, yeah, when she gets there, she's like, Swan, can we just, like, delay our wedding until my dress gets here? <laughs> And he's like, no, I've been waiting for years to marry you. What's she going to do with the dress? So he's like, no, I don't care. Burn it for all I care. Does she dye it a different color and wear it anyway? You know what? The bio doesn't follow up with the dress. I'm so disappointed. If I were to write my own biography of Francis, I'd be like, what happened to the damn dress? We don't know. Yeah. So, That's yeah. My, my episode of Say Yes to the Dress is just me being like, <laughs> 
what did happen to Frances Hodgson Burnett's dress? And this poor woman in the dress shop is just like, I, I don't know who that is. I, <laughs> I can't help you. I don't know what's going on. Please leave, madam. Take your cats with you. <laughs> so they get married in September of 1873. Their son, Lionel, was born in September of 1874, just the next year. So um, in between there, she had started working on her first novel. So that novel was The Lass O'Lories, which is about pit girls, which I didn't know what pit girls were. So I had to Google that. And then, of course, that like turned up a bunch of really unhelpful Google image search um, results. (laughs) I was like, okay. And well, yeah, um, a pit, like a pit, like a mining pit. Mining pit, thank you. So they're lady miners and it um it took place in Lancashire. So um Anne Thwaite, who wrote the bio that I'm reading, surmises that actually uh that lass, which I'm just gonna refer to it as lass from here on out, um, may have been inspired by Gaskell's Mary Barton, which we all know like is I think the first time that uh, that Lancashire dialect is in print. Oh wait, so does does Fron go and do like a bunch of Lancashire dialects? She does. Uh, that book, <laughs> I bet that book is unreadable. She also thinks that it might also have been inspired by Kay Shuttleworth's pamphlet on the moral and physical condition of the working classes employed in the cotton manufacture in Manchester. So um, this quote kind of stuck out to me uh, with regards to some of the conversation that we've had this week regarding the shuttle. So the old questions of social inequality and injustice had struck Frances even more forcibly on her return from England from the comparative democracy of Tennessee. What right have we to be more fortunate? Like Mrs. Gaskell, Frances believed in charity and opportunity rather than revolutionary change. So that kind of comes up a little bit in the shuttle and these are just sort of some things that oh, she's... I feel like it comes up quite a bit yeah these are things that she continually like grapples with in her mm-hmm. uh in her work and um yeah this is her first major work she's written a lot of stories but she put a lot into lass so i would just like to say if you add the word lancashire to pit girls it really helps it with does the, your google image search i just did it yeah, I, I ended up doing that uh, later and that, uh, yeah, that does, that does help. That does help. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, got a lot going on with Lass. Um, she's working on that that year pretty hardcore while she's pregnant. Uh, meanwhile, Swan was working away as an eye and ear specialist. So that's that's what he decided to go into. Um, not hugely in demand in Knoxville. Yeah, I can believe that. Yeah, they're looking more for a general practitioner down there. But um, this is his passion. And he knew like he had to set up practice elsewhere. So he thought someplace like Washington, D.C. would Mm -hmm. be better for him. Um, But he definitely knew that he needed some fancier credentials. So he and Francis kind of talked it over. Francis still wants to do some traveling and um, it's unclear who wants to go to Paris more, but the couple do decide, let's go to Paris. Yeah. So Francis ends up doing um, a pretty good deal with Peterson's Ladies Magazine, actually, because she's like, we have no money to go to Paris. I'm desperate to go to Paris. Let me try to like talk to my contacts and see who will, you know, upfront me some money. And Peterson's is like, yeah, okay, we will advance you $100 a month 
for stories while you're in Paris. So like writing about being in Paris any or just writing about anything that any you're stories. writing while you're in Paris. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And you're guaranteeing like X amount for us per month. And she's like, yeah, sweet deal. That's probably more akin to some of the deals that um, men are doing at the time. Okay. Yeah, Pr- yeah. Pretty big deal for Francis, though. Um, so even though she's getting this $100 a month, it's not a lot of money in Paris. No, great, I can believe that. Yeah, great money for Knoxville, but like not great for Paris. And also, um, she's the sole breadwinner at this point as well. Like Swan is not making any money. He's just like studying eyes and ears. So um, there's this letter she sent back home to her sister Edith that um, she's complaining about her, you know, lack of money. And um, she says, I have earned a great deal, but it takes it all barely to live. It seems as if the more I make, the less I get. So hashtag new money, new problems. Um, yeah, I feel that though. Like I do too. <laughs> yeah. I really do too. Especially when your family is growing. So while she's in Paris, um, not only is she taking uh, care of her son Lionel um, and working pretty much full time, Um, She also gets pregnant again with her second son. And so it's just like a lot. And so a lot of her letters back home from the Paris years are just like, I am so stressed out. Like I have worked like a dog. Like all I do is, you know, make clothes and write and take care of these kids. And I'm just sort of at my wits end. And she doesn't really get to see much of Paris either. She's like, I thought we would, you know go yeah. to museums i thought we would do all these things and like we yeah, just like we had no money working though it's not the same it's not like a holiday is it exactly so um after two years the burnettes were in debt and they were ready to return to america i will say they did actually sneak in a couple trips on their way back they did manage to go to rome which mm-hmm. she um fell in love with quite like uh, mrs gaskell And they did also go to Manchester where she, you know, she still had, you know, family friends and yeah. Yeah. So she got to see them before she went back to Newmarket, Tennessee, which she was not super happy about. So because they were in debt, um, Swan actually decided to go ahead and go on to D.C. and establish his practice. She went to Newmarket and lived with his parents. Um. And that way, it was it was kind of nice, though, because that way his parents could watch the kids while she just continued yeah. to write and write and write. But she was not pleased to be back in Tennessee. It was around this time that Lass actually was to be fully published. And thankfully, it was a big hit because okay. um, this sort of allowed the family to be reunited. Yeah, like gave them a little push that. Yeah, like finally she could go on to to D.C., um, still broke, still broke. Gotta keep that, you know, in your brains. Um, also around this time, I have to say what's really interesting kind of stuck out to me is the question of like, is she American or is she English? Yeah. So this popped up quite a bit with uh, reviewers for Lass. And um, there were actually critics that wrote to her publisher and asked if Burnett would uh, deign to write an American story. They're like, this gal's great. She's a great American writer. Why is she always writing this British stuff? (laughs) No. And then um, it kind of like was the opposite overseas too, right? It was just just really, really weird. 
Um, I will say that her editors uh, did think that Lass was so successful in the States um, because it was an English story. And yeah. uh, one line that actually uh, popped out to me from one of her editors, uh, they said that Americans like their poverty stories at a distance. So yeah, they wouldn't they didn't think that it would play well if this was a story that, about American miners. Overseas, though, I will say that she was seen as an American author. And um, it when they were like negotiating the copyright actually overseas, like they were like, listen, um, you're not going to get your British copyright unless you're like in England the day and date your book is published. And this sounds really weird. <laughs> it was very confusing. I was reading a lot about copyright this week and I was just like, this is all wildly confusing, especially in the days before like you really had a lot of things established. It was kind of like yeah. the wild, wild west of publishing, to be honest. Um, <laughs> because also like different publications are sort of like serializing um, stories without like, you know, without proper co- copyright or like sending back royalties to authors, you know? So it's just like, it's kind of a mess. But anyway, she did have to actually go over to England when last was published to be like, no, I'm a British author. Give me my British like copyright. Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's very weird. Um, another thing that happened in England was that Lass was so successful that it was actually adapted for stage. And um, it was not an authorized adaptation. It was actually very, very poorly done. And well, according to like audiences and critics, the uh, the person that actually adapted it for stage, I think, wrote into like a paper in Manchester, like trying to defend himself. I like, really? Yeah, he was like, listen, this is really hard. <laughs> Really hard to do a mine explosion on stage. I'm sorry. That's funny. Yeah. But um, of course, all of this like got back to Frances and um, she was sort of consulting other authors and like her editors. Like, what do you do? Like, there's all these unauthorized adaptations of your work. They're butchering the work. Um, Also, you're not getting paid for it. So um, she decided going forward that she would actually just start writing the, the official stage plays herself. Yeah. And this is something that she really um, struggled with because she knew that it was definitely going to take her away from her family. This is like means time, like spending and spending the time in the theater, like going off to New York, going off to, you know, to London. Um, But, you know, it does bring in more money and they need the money um, because Swan still isn't like earning as much uh, as his wife. So. So she's like, all right, I'm going to do it. Another way of earning money was to start writing children's literature because um, children's literature is still it's authors like Louisa May Alcott, who had uh, written Little Women, I think about 10 years before. Yeah. Um, You know, they're they're outselling a lot of adult authors. So um, she goes off to Boston and she meets up with Mary Mapes Dodge, who is an editor that we talked about during our Louisa May Alcott month. And she also meets with Louisa May Alcott and they sort of convince her to start writing for um, for children. So with this in mind, Francis gets started on Little Lord Fauntleroy. And we are going to leave that here for now because we'll talk more about all that next week. Next week, we'll get into like money, Francis, and crazy Francis, and sexy Francis. You said that this was romance, Francis, but this was n- not romantic and it wasn't 
it, it never got sexy. It never really got sexy. I mean, we only had the romance with Frank. I mean, really, that's about as much romance with Swan as we get. Okay. That's Is that terrible? I mean... Yeah, I feel, I feel like you missold this episode. There's going to be a few people turning off. I know. I'm sorry. Well, maybe the shuttle will get more romantical. But I will say this about Swan. No, I actually... That sounds like I'm defending him. I, I'm not defending him. Um, <laughs> I will say this. Okay, when I started reading last week um, the bio, like where I was at, I was sort of at the like Lori Joe early days oh, okay. of their relationship and yeah. i was like oh this Before is a really cute sexless. yeah this is a cute relationship and it is kind of like what if you know joe did go off and have adventures but she just had this like relationship with uh laurie via letters and then they like then they fell in love and got married years later um which was very sweet but then i did turn on swan actually because um there were a few select letters in the bio where swan is kind of like looking back on this time in his life Mm-hmm. And he really talks about like how how hard it was, how lonely it was. Um, they spent a lot of time apart, but also like when he goes back to DC to like establish his practice, like just how broke he was and how depressed he was, and just how he like somehow managed to do it. Like, and it, he just kind of made it seem like he did it all on his own. He never credits his wife with like supporting him for years. <laughs> yeah okay yeah and i just was like "Ooh, swan like what's that all about i mean on one hand i do give him credit because at this time there were definitely there were a lot of female authors actually and i know this because i'm also reading a different bio of louisa may alcott there was actually a flood of like female authors and um there was a lot of backlash against female authors and um a lot of like editorials saying things like men, you know, don't let your wives or your sisters or your daughters, you know, actually, you know, be dirty authors like men need to like take back this profession. That's so weird. I know. But Swan was very much like, hey, he was he was into it. Like he was totally supportive of her career, but it was also feeding him. Right. And then I feel like a little bit later when she is still the money maker, he, you know, he starts to have some some issues, but we'll we'll talk about that next week. Oh yeah, little Lord Fonzo, right? Have you did you tell me before who this person is? No. I Why didn't. do people say little Lord Fonzo, right? That's like a turn of phrase, isn't it? It is. It is. Oh, we can what talk about that next week. Oh, okay, next week. We'll yeah, because we'll go over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I saw. I'm, I'm sure. I always think to myself, I'm like, who is little Lord? Fonzo? Um, he's like a little dandy. I will say that much. And she was very obsessed with um, sort of uh, dressing up her sons, like making these like really elaborate suits for them. Like in Paris, um, there's this one letter where she's talking about making the son or making the suit for her son. Um, and it's like black velvet and it's got like a white fur trim and she does his hair up and all these curls and whatnot. So he's just like a little dandy. I'll have to post some of the pictures in the Facebook group, but he's just—it's—it's it's hilarious. So it's just—it's just yeah, and that's yeah. So well, he, her, her son actually is the like base for this. Oh, so when you see a little child who's like a little spoiled boy, you can go, "Oh, little Lord Fauntleroy." Yeah, yeah. Well, in that case, Dad, next time I see you, I'm calling Corbin and Oliver my little brothers, little Lords Fauntleroy. That's yeah. What I'm and then I'll get idea. Sick burn. That's what I'll do. Good. <laughs> wow, the shuttle. <laughs> the shuttle. 
the shuttle. Um, so in the notes, it says that I'm going to summarize chapters 29 to 42. However, uh, we can all remember that I didn't read all of it last week. So mm. I'm going to do 25 to 42. Because, you know, there might be some people listening in the future who haven't read this book. Maybe yeah. the shuttle exist. It's been successfully banned. And this is the only this is the only document the only... that will preserve it. Oh, wow. So I've got, I've got, I've got to give you those four chapters. Okay, sounds like a plan. This is a lot of chapters. Good luck to you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, uh, first off the bat, chapter twenty-five, we meet Lord and Lady Dunham and their son, Lord Westholt. And I've got to admit, when we first meet Lord Dunham, 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 mm-hmm. I'm going to call him Dunham because it's quicker to say. When we first meet Lord Dunham <laughs> and Lord Westholt, they're like swaggering around, they're having a little smoke, they're having a little chat. And I was like, absolute bad lads. Oh, yeah. Like, total bad lads. Clocked it. Uh, I, I, I think they seem quite nice, actually. So, yeah, they're take fine. it back. Um, they are some of the first people to visit the newly decorated Stornham. So, we hear about the house kind of from their point of view. Uh, Lord Dunham, while he's there, he makes this weird speech about how he wants to show Betsy the family gallows, and those were the good old days when you could like hang a servant or like chop their mm. hand mm-hmm. off. And these days, the worst thing you can threaten them with is like firing them. And I was like, still not bad, lads. No. <laughs> and then the next thing you have is like Betty's like, oh, I am in. I've I've fallen wholly in love with Lord Dunham, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, n- not bad, lads. Okay, thank you for, thanks for clearing that one up. Uh, she goes for a walk around the gardens with Lord Westholt. So he's he's her age and he's like a suitor, right? He's this eligible guy. Mm-hmm. And while they're walking around, who do they find? Bloody and unconscious on the floor. It's G. Selden. Yeah. And he has a little bike accident. And at first I thought it, he was like faking it. But oh, then it's like... You? Yeah, well, I thought maybe he was gonna like be rolling on the ground, like, oh, I'm, I'm so sore. But I mean, he does do that. But then there's blood because he's fallen off his bike, yeah. hit his head on a rock, and then he's not like he's not making much sense. He's just gibbering about typewriters. So Betty has him carried into the house, and Lord Westholt goes and gets a doctor, and then the Dunhams leave, and then the father and the son are just sat there, like in front of lord dunham's wife lady dunham and they're both like i love betty she doesn't say anything she doesn't have a line no counteract that but it does say that she's very happy to have a new young woman in the neighborhood so i think she's very sensible yeah 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 of course they do oh yeah so i need to get rid of this boy too i need to marry off this son this seems good yeah she's like come on and you know she's almost as good as she's almost as good as someone of rank yeah that's that's what the british people in this keep saying they're like she's almost as good as someone of rank. yeah she might do. well be it's really inconsistent it's like she should be marrying a duke or an earl and then the next thing it's like she's almost as good as us <laughs> but not quite um so g selden wakes up he's not sure what's going on again that was reminding me of you know that great scene in valette where she wakes up in the room and she's yeah. like trying to figure everything out uh, yeah. and then nurse buttle who is is it bus is buttle the footman there's this poor woman who's been like hired to come in and just look after him and she thinks that he's absolutely lost his wits because he just wakes up and is talking like an american (laughs) and she just doesn't have a clue what what he's talking about betty obviously finds him like super charming 
Rosalie finds him super charming. Uh, Uhtred is like in love with him because oh, yeah. he tells him all of these stories and they're like a fairy tale, right? But I think the thing that they find so charming about him is he's got like that American spirit, but like he he's from a completely different class to them, mm-hmm. yeah. right? So like he's, he's describing in America that these women really, they haven't seen. Right. The hustle. Uh, They've never had to actually do it, really. No, exactly. To live. Because, because, and, and it is like, we'll talk a lot more about like the feudal system in the UK. And um, I think like a lot of people have been like making like connect uh, these kind of like differences between like, well, in England, you had this like feudal system with loads of peasants and then there's America. But if you look at a corporation being like uh, a man who owns the estate, like Mr. Vanderpool is the man that owns the estate and his right. peasants are the G. Seldens mm-hmm. because there are 100 200 300 400 g seldens to one one millionaire right it's not it's not dissimilar like it isn't dissimilar at all um so yeah so this is like someone talking to a peasant basically i've lost where i am in my notes (laughs) uh so betty you know she's extravagant she buys three delkovs which are the typewriters that he's selling and then he says to her, would you mind very much if I invite my good friends, Penzance and MD, to come and stay? And she's like, hello, hold the phone, get that sexy redhead over here. Yeah, goes, he's going to be the thread that brings them together. Exactly. She puts on their good pants. Mm-hmm. They come over. They say hey. And then because I think this is really clever of um, FHB. By making G. Selden and Penzance best mates, it frees up. So every single scene after this where Mount Dunstan and Penzance, who always come together to see G. Selden, because G. Selden and Penzance are mates, there's like a really valid reason for Betty and Mount Dunstan spending time together. Yeah, good point. So I thought that was good. I like that. Um, and then the two are really starting to get uh, get to know each other. They're walking around the garden together. They're talking about life and nature and growth. And Mount Dunstan looks at her and he says that, I think, like, your life. And then she says something like, I've always hoped someone would say that to me. Do you remember that bit? Yes, yes. And I was like, that is a weird compliment to be holding out for, Betty. (laughs) That's specific. Well, I think think she's a rich girl. (laughs) <laughs> she's been told like you know things like you're beautiful nice and, eyes <laughs> yeah you've got great eyes you've got a great ass like she's been told that kind of stuff like her whole life but yeah i think she feels like he has a true understanding of like her and her no life. he really understands i am life yeah i i've got his, uh, all right betty i hope you get typhoid um so the the neighborhood's kind of finally waking up to the fact that Rosalie and Betty are in, uh, Betsy are in town, and that they are. It's kind of okay to go and visit them because, like, mm-hmm. the house is nice. Like, things are kind of sorting themselves out, and so people are just coming to visit all the live long day, and they're returning visits. And people approve of how tasteful the transformation has been. Um, I think one of the lines is that there is nothing that is new and American. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. I didn't like what, like, oh, good. They don't have any of those Uncle Sam posters up on the wall. Right, right. And uh, it didn't serve burgers. Great. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. I was trying to think what would make it really American. <laughs> I couldn't. Any clues? 
Yeah, yeah, no, I think you're right on. Some Uncle okay. Sam posters, some hot dogs, some hamburgers. Yeah. Coleslaw. New <laughs> money. No coleslaw. Yeah. Well, I think they're like, oh, well, wait wait a minute. That's what that is. What's bringing them around to the idea of like they are just as good as us. Well, yeah, you can't tell. Like the the point is that you you cannot tell walking in that it's like an American house. It feels like, but they was um. It's I think FHB makes a point of making that very clear at the beginning that um the women were almost more British than the people they were marrying because they they make such efforts to do that and then they anglicize their relatives as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, so then the women go to a garden party at Dunham Castle and Betty asks if MD is there, but he is basically more or less shunned by society as we know. But Betty is telling Lord Dunham about how they met on uh, the boat and how great he is and how misunderstood he is. And Lord Dunham, is, he feels bad for like just believing basically everything that everyone says. Yeah. And, just for assuming that this guy would be like another version of his father and brother. So he's like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to think about this. Like you have opened my eyes to the situation. So I really liked that part where he was just like, oh yeah, I have just like, you know, judged him based on gossip. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, I don't think it's this bit. I think that's a bit later on, but like just the idea of things being fair comes in. Mm Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things about um, J.M. Barry's Peter Pan is that Captain Hook is obsessed with things being fair because he's actually he's from the real world and he like went to this boarding school and it's like um, be a good sport and stuff like that. And it just it made me think of that, that like for men, there's almost this principle like you can really dislike someone, but it has to be fair that you dislike them. Mm-hmm. Right. It has to be founded in something. Um, so yeah, so they're all hanging out a fair bit. MD, Penzance, they're hanging out at the big house. They're seeing G Seldon a bit. And so everyone's kind of thrown together. Because Lord Dunham and Westholt know that G Seldon's there, and uh, she tells them all about the Delkovs that she's bought, <laughs> Westholt, who's trying to like impress her, he comes straight over and he's like, I'm going to buy some too. And I'm going to learn how to, to type with them. And that that visit gives Lord Dunham a chance to meet like Mount Dunstan himself and just to kind of fix that broken relationship that they have. And again, it kind of makes the point like, although they're neighbours because of Mount Dunstan's family, they've never really spent any time together. Mm-hmm. And everyone gets on really well because everyone's really nice. And then as if by magic... G. Selden takes a step and he's walking and oh, everyone's yeah. thrilled and then they send him off to live with Penzance mm-hmm. just for the rest of his trip like it's a nice visit yeah and then and then this is when the shit gets good basically right so Betty's outside in the garden and then bam 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 Nigel's returned yeah Awful. she's outside in the garden in white why is the white thing special I just like that she's dressed in white. She's got the white parasol as well. Just That's like just she's good. He's on. bad. Just, you know, I just, she makes a point of saying it. What's weird is that Frances actually doesn't describe the clothes uh, as much as, uh, as much as I would think that she would because Frances was like really into fashion. But she does make a point of saying that Betty's all dressed in white. I think, I think she's let off recently. Like recent, like in the last couple of chapters, because it was quite, it was quite description heavy at the beginning, mm-hmm. like the odd dress and like the colors, especially when they were buying new clothes and like, um, Betty like going to the parties and stuff. But I think, I think we haven't had as much of that. So certainly That's not true. Did. 
You had a lot about about her um, eyelashes, though. Yeah. So yeah. I, when I read the line, he was not a labourer, and she did not know him. I was like, it's Nigel. Yeah. It's Nigel. Uh. Also, my my theory that he was going to like hear a rumor and come back didn't happen. It didn't happen like that. He just like no. accidentally comes. Home. It was funny because you had we had finished taping that episode and then I had gone ahead to read it and then this was the next chapter I read and I was like, oh, oh my goodness, yeah, well, here he is. And I love his confusion as well because he's just like walking down the drive. And he's like, mm, my house looks good. Yeah. That's weird. He's like, oh, I hope they've not like, where's the money come for this? And he's like, I don't really get it. And then he sees her and he's like, that's a nice looking lady. Mm-hmm. And it, he doesn't, he just can't figure out who it is. And she recognizes him first because obviously she's, she's been expecting him, but he's, right. he would never imagine that he's going to come home and she's there. No. And, um, yeah. They're both like cool as cucumbers with each other. Like it really, I think from this point on, this is not what I was expecting the book to be like. This kind of restrained, kind of keeping the enemy close storyline. Yeah. I really, I thought it was going to be explosive. I thought it was going to be very different. I so did from too. The, yeah, isn't it so odd? It's really odd. I actually um, did think that the girls would have enough time to sort of get a plan in place once she got Rosalie like just a little bit more comfortable. I feel like there is no plan. I and, do, then, I, and then he shows up and there's no plan. But that does feel more realistic, doesn't it? You're just like, oh, God, here he is. Yeah, it's like she's done all of this stuff. But it's like, and now what? Like, it, it just feels like it hasn't been enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I really thought there was going to be like this rallying cry to the village. But we've kind of stopped even hearing about the villages now that Nigel's back. Mm-hmm. So... They keep having these like little um, conversations, these tete-a-tetes, like he's trying to find a chink in her armor. She's just trying to wind him up by saying very calm, not rising to the bait. There is so much about him like ogling her. Just oh, so yeah. much. That he's is another thing I wasn't expecting. Drinking her in. Yeah, it's disgusting. Um, and what was really awful as well is that when Rosalie and Uhtred return, because they've been out, they come back. And again, they weren't expecting to see Nigel and just the change that comes over the two of them, like the Mm -hmm. panic and just and the joy that he has about that, like knowing that they weren't expecting him. And that's why he came home the way he did, because he gets pleasure out of that sudden distress and like seeing the change that comes over people. Right. Again, Rosalie and Utrecht more or less disappear from this point (laughs) in the book, which is which is odd in conversation, you know, they, they come up in conversation, but where it's been very heavily like Rosie and Betty now it's like Betty and Nigel. Mm-hmm. Um, so that night, well, I've just said she's disappeared, but Rosie actually does go to see Betty that night. <laughs> <laughs> and she says that like Nigel's already like night one, Nigel's trying to um, get these two apart. He's saying that she's a very clever woman. He's insinuating that being a clever woman is like a bad thing. She's saying to Betty, like, don't make him angry. Uh, and then the next day, Nigel, he just starts to make sure that he gets all of this alone time with her. So he's still trying to get an idea of what's been going on while he's away. He's still trying to see what her weaknesses are. And he discovers almost by accident that it is people thinking that she's a tease. Yeah. So did you expect that? Did you think that I that was going to be her comeuppance? I did not. And I wasn't expecting her to agree with him. Yeah. Well, I mean, that shows how clever he is, right? At the manipulation. 
Yeah, I he's mean, been yeah, lo- I mean, he's, he's been looking for it, right? Like it. he just like he can he will throw something out there and just see just to what see how she reacts, is. and yeah. then it's like, nope, that's close, or nope, that's off base. Let me change my tactic. So yeah, yeah, so, he's, yeah. he's really fast. Yeah, um, and then obviously he touches on Mount Dunstan, another sore spot, and he knows it, and yeah. he basically says to her from that point, he's like, oh, it is not seeming for you to like be out and about as a young unmarried woman with this guy i'm your nearest male relation i'm your brother-in-law i'm gonna chaperone the fuck out of you yeah so and he does very effectively um there's gonna be this a big ball at dunham castle betty rosalie and nigel are invited before the ball nigel says something like scathing about new york i think he says something almost like suggesting it's vulgar or whatever yeah and there's this great moment where rosie is actually like i don't want you to talk to me about new york that's my home yeah and she's just like no but then betsy walks in and nigel's like oh my my wife's trying to have like a little scene with me and she's mm, like oh I re- oh yeah i remember that by bit. all means carry on <laughs> i was like <laughs> yes betsy and um and then she just sits there and like basically her and Nigel have this argument and I was like oh they're actually arguing I thought this is when it's going to start getting heated up but it cools down again afterwards. Rosie's just sat there in silence while they are discussing the fact that actually although he thinks that he can get away with anything there are laws in place to protect women there are things in place to protect women who are in Rosie's position and that things aren't as hopeless as Rosie might think they are. Mm-hmm. And then Nigel, he he walks out. He's like, I can't like win this conversation, you know. Like, I can't. Yeah, he's he's got to go. He has nothing further to say. Yeah. And Rosie kind of realizes that although it comes across like Betsy was talking to Nigel, she was also telling Rosie, like, listen, right. these these things are all true, and he has nothing to counteract this with. You know, like he couldn't, he couldn't argue his way out of that one. And I think Rosie needed to see that he needed, she needed to see that he doesn't, doesn't have like a counter argument for the things that, that Betsy is saying. Which is why he just immediately walks out because he needs, he needs the scene to play out in front of Rosie and it doesn't. And it doesn't. Gotta go. So they go to the bull. Everyone is civil to Nigel, which is like a nice surprise for him because obviously everybody despises him because mm-hmm. he's gross. And they are just doing it for the sake of the women. And by for the sake of the women, I do mean for the sake of Betsy. Like right. people, I don't think people are really that bothered about Lady Anne's brothers. She is Betsy's sister, you know, right. like, um, and even Betsy is civil to him and she doesn't want to cause it's She doesn't want to cause a scene in front of anyone. She doesn't want to start any gossip. She just wants everything to be fine she's playing a role and she's very aware that all eyes are on her Mm -hmm. we learn very quickly that she is just as popular with rich old people as she is with rich poor people we meet the dowager lady allenby and there's this great part where she just makes her friends move she's like move oh yeah get out of here yeah exactly (laughs) um and those two girls are lady jane and lady mary who come back later but they're just sat there like, oh, this is so sad because <laughs> Lady Jane is in love with that woman's grandson, Tommy. And she knows that she is trying to get Tommy and Betty together. But she's like genuinely loved this guy since she was a child. Right. Yeah. And so it sucks that she just has to sit there and watch this happen. And then in Gaskell style, we get both Betty and Mount Dunstan's point of view of the ball. 
they are both aware of where the other one is and what they're doing and who they're talking to and like they're not dancing together they're not talking to each other they're talking to other people and then he comes over uh so many good lines he says will you dance with me she says yes and he then says will you dance with me to the very end to the very last note and she says yes <laughs> <laughs> and then they dance Nigel's watching everyone's watching but Nigel's like I ain't having this shit and then at the end Mount Dunstan says to her he says thank you one will have it to remember yeah. that's that's panty good. dropping stuff that's it's good great stuff it's good, good stuff. It's the only time he's ever danced, right? Doesn't he? Does is that the time when he says that? When he says that he learned to dance, he, he learned at to dance school, school, and he and said only very badly. circumstances would yeah. make him dance again. And she's like, "I'm special circumstances." Exactly. <laughs> Was I? I think I said that in a weird voice. Um. So then, immediately after the dance, Nigel's like, "Oh, hey, Mount Dunstan." great bull you should come and hang out <laughs> yeah my house. he's power play he's trying to he's trying to get in there he's trying to mm-hmm. like fiddle trying to interfere um i really liked the bull scene it was good i really liked that chapter have you seen my fair lady of course you know the bit when um there's the bull and eliza doolittle's kind of dancing around and all of the eyes are on her and everyone's talking about her and the mm-hmm. prince asks for the introduction It really reminded me of that because you've got this bit where this unspecified prince from no real country is like watching her. It's just like the whole thing. That's what I could see. I think I can really see this being a film. Oh, yeah. I I can't believe this. I mean, I will say this. It has been adapted once in the silent uh, era. Yeah, but I mean like a real one. But like, like a real... Kira Knightley. Like a real <laughs> Kira Knightley movie, you know? Yeah. If it's Get a period it, drama and Kira Knightley hasn't done it, is it real? Is and it real? Is, no. Oh, unclear. So Nigel and Betty still constantly sizing each other up. This is what this whole part of the book is about. The whole <laughs> seven hours of audiobooks that I listened to this week. Oh, it really is. Just kind of low-key fighting. Uh, we do learn, it's quite disturbing because we learn that um, Nigel hates Mount Dunstan because Mount Dunstan stopped Nigel and Lord Tenham, who is Mount Dunstan's brother, I guess, like interfering with some village girl. And I can only assume yeah. that means that they were sexually assaulting a village girl and Mount Dunstan walks in. Yeah. Just, you know, in case you didn't hate Nigel enough. Yeah. Just, yeah, just a little, a little more hate for you there. Yeah. Shortly after the boom, Uh, Lady Allenby comes to visit with her grandson, Tommy. But she doesn't know that also Lady Jane and Lady Mary, the two young girls, and their aunt have also decided to go and visit. And so these two old ladies both know what's going on. They're like, oh, I see you. I see what you're doing here, Lady Allenby, trying to get these two to propose. Mm -hmm. And Lady, is it Lady Mary tells Betty that Lady Jane and Tommy have been in love with each other all along? Yeah. And that she basically says something just... like along the lines like if you know if something were to interfere with their love like that she would cry so hard that her eyes would look like uh pale gooseberries or like boiled <laughs> gooseberries. <laughs> that just really stuck out to me. Yeah. 
But I think I really liked this about Betsy. So Betsy basically manufactures a scene where Tommy can just propose to her and just get it out of the way and be rejected. Yeah, well, it's very um, trans-Nash, is it not? Because she says, like, listen, if he wants to ask me a direct question, I will give him a direct answer. And then Tommy's like, oh, this is this is very this is this, this is hard this is I, that, that's a very yeah. yeah this is this is i'm i'm english i'm not american i just can't ask her a direct question but but he does but he does and she says no and then on the way home everyone else is happy because tommy's done his duty you know like he asked yeah. the wealthy american heiress can we get married and she's like not having it right and that's all like like that's all lady allenby needs i don't even think she really expected anything to come of it but you at least have to try and get the money right 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 you've got to try and i thought you know it's like if if betty was like any other person or like this flighty american airhead that everyone seems to think she is um like that's that's someone else's problem right she didn't need to interfere with that she could have just laughed it off or kind of toyed with him or led him on or enjoyed the attention or the drama it was causing but she's just like let's put this to bed because i'm not interested Mm -hmm. uh so then there's a lovely garden party at stornham mount dunstan and betty continue to play cat and mouse with each other they're not talking to each other but they know where the other one is she watches like super jealously as he just sits there next to lady mary um and doesn't realize that basically the whole conversation he's having is about her. Then they both go to have some peace and quiet. They end up stumbling upon each other in a quiet spot with a lovely view. And they decide to show the view to each other. And then they're having this nice time. And then Mount Dunstan's like, would you like to hear a story of my weird ancestor? <laughs> he says, Red do you Godwin. like a savage romance? Yeah. Do you like a savage romance? And, and he so basically red godwin has his eye on this woman um alice of the sea blue eyes he locks her up he makes makes her watch him do loads of good lad tricks uh Mm -hmm. like caber tossing i don't know like pie yeah 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 Uh, and basically all of this is designed to make him look like the biggest and strongest man in the neighborhood he then throws a big old pie gets all of his gold plates out serves loads of food and then at the end he says to her right you can go now and she looks at him and she's got tears in her eyes and then because she's a proud woman she turns to leave but then he whirls her up in his arms and then they kiss because she doesn't want to leave but she has to leave right because Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. she's a captive she's saying like i love you but i can't stay because i was a cat i can't i'm not really sure what the point was i think the spirit of it is that like First of all, Mount Dunstan was reading this like when he was a kid, right? So Mm -hmm. it's just like, and then also there's this take charge, take anything you want aspect of it that um, he finds like romantic. However, you have to look at the actions of the person, right? He's not doing it. Because he doesn't do it. At any point. That's the thing. I think I know a lot of people were upset that he like, you know, they they had this conversation Mm-hmm. But um, you look at the actions of the man. He's like, this is a story of my ancestors. Like, that's been passed down. It's a romantic story. I'm trying to woo you. But he doesn't take what he wants. And this is actually Betty's problem with him. She wants him to yeah. ask her a direct question. He is not. He's too English to do it. Yeah. And also, but I think it's like, he's acknowledging, like, this is a this is a thing 
that's like like I could like I could do this but we've moved on yeah and it's like a self-control thing like yeah I could do this like I could just do this but I'm not gonna yeah I didn't well even Penzance is like there's a primal thing about you know like he's like there's something Mm -hmm. primal about your attraction to each other and you should just take this woman and MD is constantly just like no no not gonna not gonna Mm -hmm. do it and Bessie is like oh uh, uh, Bessie says that Red Godwin was almost modern in his methods now I am curious about what that means I know I am too I was like is he is he Okay. Yeah, I, I was. I, I'm not sure what that means. Oh, come on. And then there's another bit, and she like the when he's describing the feast, and she's like, "Yes, they do that still in Paris and New York." And I was like, <laughs> "I've got to go to these parties with the gold plates." It I sounds mean, rich, real nice. Rich people are different. I don't know, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that McDonald's is served in the gold plate. Yeah. Um, right. So then the next day, Mount Dunstan tells Penzance all about how much he loves Betty. He's frustrated by his feelings. He's also very aware from his chat with Mary just how many people are chasing after her, just how valuable she is, just how desired she is. Mm-hmm. And then Penzance says that um, he's sure that they're going to end up together. And he also thinks that they kind of like called each other across the ocean. Yeah. He's like way into this uh, this otherworldly. <laughs> He's like living vicariously through them. I imagine him and G. Selden just sit there, like winding each other up with it. Say this, say this. This is funny. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, MD's feeling great, by the way. He started to sleep well. He feels positive. Oh, he feels I healthy. He's mm-hmm. feeling himself. He's so strong. He's so like mm, so virile. He's a virile horse of a man, which is a Grey's Anatomy line. <laughs> Come at me in the comments if you know who says it. Um, actually, I'm going to cast that guy as an American Mount Dunstan. This is very niche. I'm sorry. It's very niche. Oh, sure. Um, he takes a towel, goes for a walk in the forest, and then just casually has a bath in his bathing pool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very Mr. Darcy. So I think that, again, that would be a great scene in the television adaptation that they never make. Yeah, I know, right? Oh, God, this is ready for a television adaptation. He's feeling super like proactive. He's going to get shit done. So he decides to go and visit one of the hops farmers who's called Volta or Bolter. But I don't know because this bit's not in the Persephone one. So I can only oh, go really? by how things sound. Yeah. And he reckons that Volta. if he can get in on the hops harvest, that actually he might have a shot, right? He realizes that if he can just focus his, his efforts on doing like one thing well, then eventually he can do two things well, mm-hmm. right? Instead of you just need to think small. But guess who's also interested in the damn hop harvest? Yeah, Betty. Our friend, our friend Betty. <laughs> our friend Betty. Our friend Betty. <laughs> so they learn all about the hops process together, except he already knows. So he's just mansplaining about the hops process to her and she's well into it. And then they go for a walk around the hops garden. And then he's like, what happens next? Like, what's the plan? And she's like, I don't know. <laughs> See you later, sucker gets on her horse and then rides off with uh, Lord Westholt, who she just happens to bump into. Yeah, that was a little, that scene was weird. And then he's just waving, Mount Dunstan's just watching her go. And he's just like, yeah. yeah. So then obviously he's sad again. He goes back home. He imagines this house is full of ghosts. He compares it to an aging soldier on crutches, but he acknowledges to himself that the reason that he does all of these like odd jobs and these small repairs is almost like, He's acknowledging that he does have hope that there is a reason to be doing it. 
Mm-hmm. Like he's fixing the the state rooms because maybe one day they'll be in use again. So although he says yeah. that he's like a retired old bachelor, he kind of isn't. Like no, that's not what he not. wants from life. No. Um. There's a storm. Nigel goes. Uh. He's like, I'm gonna go and see Mount Dunstan. I'm gonna specifically go and see Mount Dunstan in this storm because I'll have to be invited to stay. Right. Someone commented on the Facebook group that this was very Mrs. Bennett. Yeah, I agree. This was very Mrs. Bennett. This is exactly what Mrs. Bennett gets Jane to do. Cunning. And, cunning. And this is a thing, too. I mean, it makes sense when you think about it now. You're like, yeah. Yeah, you would have to invite someone to stay if there was if there was a terrible storm. Do you want to know what I used to do? My trick. Um, hmm. I used to, there's a, a guy who I liked and uh, his house was en route to my house. And so I'd be like, oh, can I just use, can I use your bathroom? <laughs> that was my storm that was that was your storm again you it, feel free to cut that out did it oh it worked a couple of times did it, okay, cut this oh, good cut this story out all right okay thank you she's not gonna when he's there nigel just bangs on and on and on and on about betty uh, but it's like mean stuff right so it's like betty's out to get what she wants She has been talking about, you know, like she quite fancies Mount Dunstan's estate, right? She thinks it's a great thing, but she also thinks of it quite disdainfully because he's just let it go. Mm -hmm. Like it's a waste of capital. He's not looking after it. Mount Dunstan gets annoyed. He says to Nigel that he might as well just back off, go somewhere else. Nigel says, I shall stay where she is. I will have that satisfaction at least. Horrible, creepy line. Yeah. Mount Dunstan then threatens Nigel with physical violence. But again, Nigel is right in saying that it's the last thing Betty wants. It would be all over the papers and it would be a scandal. So he can't even do that. Mm-hmm. And again, that's I thought maybe that would be a thing that would happen. Like maybe there'd be like a big fight. Yeah. But no. It's another scene again where Nigel's just like pushing someone's buttons and trying to figure out what, exactly. what works. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we then are reunited with our lad, G. Selden. He's back in America. He goes for a lovely dinner with his friends at a place called Shandy's. There's a cute meal. They have beef steak and mushrooms and potatoes hashed brown. Oh, and they're yeah. all super happy for him. He's been given this letter by Betty to take to her dad. He's got this new English suit. He looks well classy. Living, living the high life, living the, the best life he's got. We then cut to Mr. Vanderpool. He's been reading all of Betty's letters and he's trying to like piece things together, right? Just through what she's saying, what she isn't saying, just from Mm -hmm. the photos and the accounts of everyone. Did you notice that in this part, it's like, oh, that Lord Westholt proposed to Betty and she said no? I was confused. Do they mean Tommy? I think so. I don't think you missed it. I think it's meant to be Tommy and someone has like edited it wrong because Lord Westholt has not proposed. Now I need to re-look over. Yeah. He hasn't. He, like, if there is a person who knows what's... (laughs) It hasn't happened in the long version and it hasn't happened in the Persephone version. Because I've also been waiting for it. Yeah. So either they've decided for it to happen off screen or it's just just wrong. The name's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then it's not a mistake that Persephone made. Maybe he has proposed and they just, it's just not important. Yeah. So um, he suspects that 
she loves Mount Dunstan. He's trying to figure that out. He's like, this is the person that she likes, right? There's mm-hmm. other guys, but like, this is the person that she wants. When G. Selden arrives, Mr. Vanderport just asks for a general update on his daughters. And then this is kind of like a job interview. So the more G. Selden talks, he's like showing good sense. He's showing that he's like a, a smart guy. He's likable. He's a hard worker. He sees things. He's perceptive. Um, all lots of different words that mean the same thing that I can list right now. <laughs> sure, right, right. He uses his brain, his mind, and his wits. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're talking about the Delkov, and they're talking about how much G. Selden earns. And Mr. Vanderpool basically says to him, "Well, you can go and tell your employer that when you have your own territory, which means that he'd earn more per sale than yeah. Mr. Vanderpool." It's going to be coming to you for all Delkov typewriters, but not yeah. until you've got your own territory. Really, so the really best nice. thing—the best thing he could do—instead of giving him like a crazy order, he's like, "No, I'm going to make you a boss." Yeah, exactly. Like it's we're going to get you up the ladder, and he's mm-hmm. not like stealing him either. He's not saying like, "I'll give you a job doing something else." He's like, "This thing that you are doing and seem all right at doing, like, will help set that up." Yeah. It's back clever. in back in Blighty back with old betty and blighty mm-hmm. she's on the marshes she's suddenly got a dog called roland yeah i don't know i don't know where again <laughs> roland unclear i guess he was um the puppy that lord westholt gave her when he proposed oh uh, probably uh, all right that was a noise <laughs> <laughs> so she's on the marsh she's thinking about mount dunstan how he's so proud they probably won't get together and there's this great line where it goes the years would pass and his youth with them. He would gradually change into an old man while he watched the things he loved with passion die slowly and hard. <laughs> and that made me think of the Lord of the Rings. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> There's that bit in the film where Elrond says to Arwen, he's like, if you stay here with this man, you'll just watch him die. And then he sees, and then there's the bit with the child in the forest. And then she goes, she stays to be with Aragorn. Oh, I don't know anything about Lord of the Rings. Great. Good. We'll mm-hmm. move on. I shouldn't yeah. have brought it up. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, then she starts to think about Nigel and how he's developed this disgusting habit of get- getting her alone and treating her like they're lovers, but also like in public. So like just in sight of people. So he yeah. started to lower his voice. He leans-, he leans in when he talks to her, kind of like shuts other people out. It's all very like sickly and like on purpose but she also knows that anything she does just makes it worse so there's an instance where she tries to joke about it in front of the people that he's just interrupted and then he takes it badly kind of gets upset and then stalks off but that just looks like they're having a lover's quarrel like that doesn't help anything and people are becoming scandalized by it like polite society just thinks that they are having this weird kind of flirtation or affair and this includes the Dunhams, um, they witness it. So does Lady Allenby. She doesn't know what to say. She just stares. She's just like, I I don't even, like, I can't mm-hmm. with this. Um, and that that is how Sir Nigel is going to defeat her. And it isn't. this isn't just a plan. Like, he's not just doing it because it's a way of getting one over Betty. Like, he, he wants her. Like, he is obsessed yeah. with her. And so he, he really, he means all of these things that he's saying as well. Like, he would be her lover if he could. And so he's living out this very one-sided, horrible fantasy that she cannot escape from. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, it's awful. Um, so he tells Betty that she will not be allowed to take Rosie to America, that she won't be able to take Uhtred to America, that he's going to keep a strong hold of them. He then repeats that to Rosie, but adds that if she ever defies him, that he's going to destroy Mr. Folliot. Yeah. that priest from before and so suddenly the stakes aren't just Rosie they're not just Uhtred but there's this other person involved this other innocent back on the marshes Nigel's obviously found Betty there because he's stalking her he knows exactly where she's going she's got Roland the dog with her so you know yeah uh, and he says to her like why don't you come and have a chat with me underneath this tree mm-hmm. she's like I ain't sitting down I'll chat with you <laughs> but I'm not I'm not sitting down and he he asks her he says why do you insist on treating me like the devil? Yeah. And I was like, Nigel, come on. Oh, it was awful. But and it then, was like the perfect line. I was like, he would say that? Yeah, like he's cl- like, oh, it's, uh, oh, it's, no, he's oh, clever. I like I can't, like I, I found this, I, I find the Nigel stuff really hard. Uh, he it later is. goes on to say, um, cannot you see you could do whatever you pleased with me? Mm-hmm. It's gross. Like it makes my skin cruel. Um, he begins to rant. He says that his wife has made Betty hate him. So his wife has made Betty hate him. Mm-hmm. Um, he and I like, do you know what? I think there's part of him that does believe this stuff, but also part of him that knows it's a lie. Uh, he says that he's got folly in the palm of his hand, that he can control the gossip. And Betty just looks at him. And she's just like, mate, you are raving. Like, can you hear yeah. yourself? Yeah. And she's like, there's, you're not, there's something not right with you. Like, you're ill. You're making yourself ill. Like, mm-hmm. think about what you're doing. You're not, like, you're not doing okay, mate. And then she just leaves him under the street. She just walks off. Just mm-hmm. leaves him there sweating. And he's like, damn it, woman. <laughs> oh, we are so close it's to the end fault. of this recap. <laughs> Um, back at the house, she gets back. Our favorite, Mrs. Brent, lovely woman. Oh, yeah. Uh, she's there. And she just, not there for very long. She's just like, by the way, there's typhoid fever over at the old Mount Dunstan house. Because the hops farmers, three of them have, have died. Awful. No, three people. Three that's people. That's a lot. Yeah. But that, that is a serious outbreak. So it's, it's not good. It's You do want to tell people that as fast as you can. Yeah. Betsy wants to help Mount Dunstan. But she can't. She's not a nurse. As she says, it's the days of past where you would just go and prescribe whatever to your friends. Mm-hmm. And then that made me think of um, Beth in Little Women when she's just like, she goes off and she's trying to help people. And it's like, you're oh, not yeah. you know what you're doing. And then she dies. And then so she like, dies. Right. I was like, I see you, FHB. I see what you're saying. Um, <laughs> so she writes to Penzance. She offers whatever help that she can. And at the same time, Mount Dunstan kind of has this realization that he doesn't have any money. He can't he can't really do a lot for these people that are just on his land, dying in these like little squalid, broken huts, other than offer them shelter. So he gets them all over into his ballroom and he sets up a, a hospital. Mm-hmm. And this isn't something that's like normally done. This is something that he he is doing. He's like breaking new ground of this. He opens his doors, he gets them in. Bessie, of course, is sending supplies and doctors. She hasn't even waited to be asked. She's just been consulting with a, a doctor in London. And he's like, oh, typhoid, this is what you need. So mm-hmm. that's what she sends over. So before they even know what they want, it's just like, well, here it is. And then while this is happening, like Mount Dunstan is, he's just there like every day. He's working as hard as the nurses. He's tending to people. 
he's sitting with them he's talking to them and he almost becomes this like beacon of health for them so they see him and they ask for him and when they do they feel better they feel stronger almost like they've got more of a chance when he's around yeah and it kind of gave me shades of when um gave me shades of when john thornton yeah sort of yeah was uh hanging out with your boy yeah with and the sort of ring. like yeah just sort of like meeting the people like getting to know like their needs and their wants and just like brought down on their level so yeah, yeah. It gave me gave me some thornton flashbacks um, and then there's this like really nice little bit where it's kind of like an insight into the future and you know that those hops pickers go back to London and in like these hushed reverent tones they talk about the time that Lord Mount Dunstan let them into the, his home and like really protected mm-hmm. them and like did all he could to to save them. Um, and we also know that while that's happening, Betty is telling Lord Dunham, Lady Allenby, all of their neighbours just about the good work that he's doing. And they're all kind of like, oh, marvellous, marvellous. Let's all send money. So then everyone in the neighbourhood is like, of, like, I've never thought, I would never think to do that. I would never do that. But he's absolutely right. Like, this is very, right. very noble that he's done it. So they all just write these checks and they're just sending him money. So I'm hoping that he makes a little bit of extra. If I do too. Yeah, get some, I've been get some repairs done with that typhoid money, please. Um, and then he's also because he's got to look after his villagers as well. So he walks into his village and he sees that because everyone's nervous about the typhoid, all of their windows are shut. They're all kind of stuck in, and he knows that all that's going to happen is they're going to be breathing in this stale, like sick air. So he's mm-hmm. like, if you don't open all of your windows, I'm going to come and open your windows. Like if I see anyone's windows shut. I'm coming to I'm coming to open them. Also, here's some disinfectant. Clean your shitty houses. Thank <laughs> you very much. Um, and then he and uh, Penzance basically they just start to visit like every day. They're checking on the sick. They're making sure that nobody is unwell. That the houses are clean. That those windows are kept open. And the villagers feel cared for. They feel safe. They feel like he's really taking responsibility, like for their well-being. Mm-hmm. and that it matters to him that I think they feel seen yeah and so they're growing to love and respect him in the same sort of way that Storm and Village is growing to love and respect Betty because she's like aware and he's just aware of really like the situation that they're in and they're grateful that he's taken the typhoid away from them mm-hmm. um and it kind of finishes with him saying that it is a new experience and it is good for a man's soul mm-hmm. and there we have it the longest yeah. recap that nobody asked for that will be in the season two feedback hannah did not need to recap the entirety <laughs> of the shuttle it's a long book very long book but it's good it was a good recap do you want to know what was missing from persephone yeah yeah give me hit me i Let's felt see what like happened here. it felt like we were doing okay uh and then some big chunks were missing whole characters again so chapter 33 is cut in its entirety. We actually don't hear that the reason Nigel was dumped in the Riviera is because he's sick. Okay. That so seems like that. it's going to be important. All right. Yeah. Uh, we don't get the Tommy storyline. Tommy does not exist in the land of Persephone. Hmm. Neither do Lady Jane and Lady Mary. So the proposal scene isn't there. Um, and uh, MD and Lady Mary talking at the garden party. Uh, doesn't exist oh well that's all very romantical stuff too that would like sort of lend more to the romance aspect yeah exactly 
Um, we keep Red Godwin, but then the following two chapters, which are both MD chapters, are cut. So we don't get the chat between Mount Dunstan and Penzance talking about how much he loves Betty, how Penzance thinks they've drawn each other across the ocean. We don't get him taking his towels to the bathing pool. And we oh. don't get the chapter about the hops harvest. Oh, what? Yeah, so we don't go to the hop house. We don't have that chat in the garden. We don't have the family of... Um, what are they like trekkers, tramps, trampers? Yeah, okay, we All don't right. have them on the roadside. Gone. Interesting. Man, they cut a lot. Yeah. The um Tommy stuff, it does feel like extra. Like that chapter, I remember like reading it, just being like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. But um, it felt like a know, comedy it- though. It did. It it did. This book um is kind of all over the place with tone. I can't. It is all over the place. I can't tone. quite like it doesn't quite settle um because Nigel is just so you know just insidious and that that just creeps me the hell out. And then yeah, you'll have a chapter like this where it's just. But all how effective are these Nigel bits? Like when you're reading oh, it, so like, effective. I have chills when I'm reading it, and like that is good writing. Like I it's- I hate Nigel. There's um, a couple things that I have highlighted, actually. Should we talk about some of the bits we liked, but in regards to Nigel? Yeah. Because you have a quote here that I I actually um, highlighted as well. And that is um, what you have labeled the Nigel Anstruthers Guide to Abusing Women. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to read this bit. Yeah, so the Nigel Anstruthers Guide to Abusing Women is not a piece of writing that I like, but I do think it's tidy. Right. It's like, I don't like what it's saying, but it's, yeah. So, you made love to them. You flattered them either subtly or grossly. You roughly or smoothly bully them, or you harried them with haughty indifference. If your lovemaking had produced its proper effect when it was necessary to lure or drive or trick them into submission. Women should be made useful in one way or another. Women should be made useful in one way or another. Yeah, it's so tidy. It's so tidy. Um, I actually uh, underlined this bit when he was just entering the scene. Um, it said he had lately been passing through unpleasant things, which had left him feeling himself tricked and made ridiculous. He had said to himself. And there had been an acrid consolation in looking forward to the relief of venting oneself on a woman who dare not resent. So this is him going home to Stornum, just looking forward to abusing Rosie, basically. Yeah. And then he comes across yeah. Betty and he's like, and oh, that's, and new that's challenge. Exactly what he does. And like, even when, even in the midst of everything that's going on with Betty, he like perks up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can't wait. Can't wait. And this woman is um, it's such a complex situation because it, she is a woman that has power over him. Right. Like mm-hmm. he does know that she's got all this money, which just is part of the attraction. Um, She's very attractive. People love her. You know, the villagers love her. The you know, the local gentry, they love her. Um, she has so much power and he is just um, not, not only attracted to her physically, but attracted to the idea of like bringing her down in some way. I don't know why this part um, kind of struck me, but um, 
just Betty uh, arranging her campanulas. So she's in the garden, he's talking, and every time he, there's this point where she realizes she's stooping down to pick a flower, not because she wants the flower, but because she's trying to hide her face. Mm-hmm. And then uh, she's like rearranging them to kind of distract herself or to to fidget, you know, to show, to hide her discomfort. And I, I just thought that um, it was really clever. It's like she's hiding her rage. She's hiding her power beneath these apparently like frivolous feminine acts of just like picking yeah. flowers. And it's like, it's armor. And then in the same sentence as Betsy arranged her camp, com- I can't say it, companionless, um, it says like it wouldn't be appropriate to draw sword. Yeah. And I was like, draw sword is a great sentence. Like, that's the new app. Uh, don't at me. It's like, don't make me draw a sword. So, um, so I mean, speaking of drawing it, but... swords, I do feel like we have <laughs> to figure out what her plan is now. I mean, we neither of us have read the ending of the book, but now I'm just like, oh, my God. OK. Yeah. I, What's where the is plan, Betty? Well, where is this where... going? Nigel and Mount Dunstan are both going to get typhoid and Nigel's going to die. But Mount Dunstan will survive that's your prediction that's my prediction i've been wrong before i guess we should do a couple of uh listener comments in this three hour three and a half hour we should okay let's do it um let's see all right dinah we're gonna talk about nigel some more yeah right back on the nigel (laughs) i know we were like we're trying to get off nigel wait a minute we gotta talk about nigel (laughs) Um, she said, it has been interesting to me how much of Sir Nigel's thoughts in her monologues we are getting. Like in chapter 31, when he thinks about the ways to deal with women, all of the inner monologues do is show how awful he is. But it is interesting because we aren't always given this villain's thought process. And it's unnerving because he is so bad and mean and awful. I can't wait for Rosie and Betty to triumph over him in the end, majorly hoping that this happens. I know I will be devastated if it doesn't happen. LOL. Same here. Um, I'm loving the dialogue between Betty and Nigel. She is such a boss and major goals. I'm hoping for an epic showdown between them when they first met. Um, after all those years, not going to lie, I was getting the good, the bad, the ugly music played in my head. Yes. Uh, yeah, totally. What, how does that go? Oh, gosh. I should just like insert it here, actually, um, in editing. But um, no, I on. also did like sort of um imagine like that's why the like her all in white was important to me because I just like imagined her like standing on the street with the sun like setting behind her and she's just like in white and just like this vision that appears before him she's and- just wearing a, a lawn dress yeah but it's just it's epic it's epic Hannah it's got to be epic in the miniseries I'm sorry yeah. she should well she um, wear a Stetson she can have a couple of guns holstered to her and then the the cowboy musical play. Yeah, symbolic guns. Um, Dinah also said, can we decide that Sir Nigel is the ultimate bad lad no. or can we make up a new name for him? Because I feel like he is so much worse than the other bad lads that have been discussed on the podcast. Um, well, here's the thing, actually. I like ultimate bad lad sounds positive. So I'm going to definitely say no to ultimate bad lad. Well, I will say um, Dinah's right in her earlier comment because, like, you don't get the thought processes of, like, you don't get Wickham's perspective like this, right? No. So Wickham could be just as evil. 
Oh, I mean, like, I feel Sir like Walter this, could, this could be with him. I did it. Yeah, like, I yeah. Just, like, the yeah. other bad lads are, you know, like, they could be as bad. We don't know. We just don't have their, like, their POV the same way. Uh, so Kimberly said, my new favorite thing to say, courtesy of G. Selden, that girl, that girl is a winner from Winnersville. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. That is such a good line. I even Winner think, I don't think that's in the Persephone one, you know. I think I had to, like, manually write that into my book just so that I've got Aww. it. Yeah, I did. Um, okay, good. The entire dialogue at Shandy's was a delight. It made me want to go back and watch old American movies starring young Mickey Rooney. Now, here's a fun little fact for you. I don't know who that is. Uh, I'm shocked. Shocked. <laughs> wow. So, um, Alicia talks about uh, Betty and her coolness. So she says, every time Betty opens her mouth around Nigel, things go zing. We felt it so unfortunate that even your solicitors did not know your address. Yeah, I did like that uh, part when she was talking to Nigel. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, we went to the lawyers. <laughs> no one knew where you were. Sorry, we tried. We tried to inform you that we were going to do all this stuff. Um, Let's see. Oh, yeah, this line. This was great. What does a man do when he will not stand a thing? It always sounds so final and appalling as if he were threatening horrible things such as perhaps we were a resource in feudal times. But what is the resource in these dull days of law and order and policemen? Yeah. Yeah. It's like and policemen should be underlined. Um, Yeah, that was a great, great uh, set of quotes there. Betty's great. She's got fine. great lines. Uh, She's got great lines. She's got great style, but I still don't feel like I know her. I am just going to quickly give another shout out to Eleanor. She's posted a lot of great comments this week um, relating to her Pinterest and also for that hops documentary. So I actually watched that and I'm like, oh, this is how we grow beer. I should watch it. It was great. It was delightful. Um, but Eleanor did not get comment of the week. Who who did? Oh, right to rub it in. Sorry, Eleanor, you didn't get it this week. I'll tell you who got but it. But we love you. But we love yeah, you. We do love you. But this week it goes to Neve. So this is great. We did cut this one down. So this is only about half of it. If you want to read the rest, you've got to go on the old Facebook and just dig through like a lot of posts and then find this one comment. Okay, <laughs> deal. It's most definitely a love letter to the feudal system and bringing Americans such as Betty back to their English roots in restoring the old ways. Burnett isn't acknowledging any Americans who weren't descended from British settlers anyway. The first Reuben Vanderpool and Red Godwin do seem to have something in common in how they didn't let anything stop them in order to get what they wanted, to use a euphorism. Presumably, this is the American energy Betty brings to Stornham and which attracts Mount Dunstan in spite of his prejudices. It seems that while other people may suffer from this ambition, the regal heir of Mount Dunstan slash Betty give them an almost God-given right to establish a social order to fit their own liking. Look at all the descriptions of Mount Dunstan's strength and power and the painting of Betty as a goddess-like figure. They are to be worshipped and admired by all around them. They are a justification of the system, proof it holds value. Of course, Burnett forgets Sir Nigel here. Stornham is quite literally his birthright, but he neglects all his responsibilities as a landowner. 
the success of the system is only possible where those who inherit believe in its value. Yes. So. Snaps. Very good. Loved it. Yeah. Love the old feudal system. I love learning about it. Uh, Mm -hmm. We want to live in it. (laughs) Very thankful for the peasants' revolt. Amen. So now, (laughs) shall we wrap this one up? I would love to. (laughs) Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, Hannah. Um, Oh, actually, let me do this. Oh, God. Before. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Before we uh, wrap this episode up, I just want to say a big congratulations to two of our bonnets, Jen Swenson and Mary uh, Kravinas. Oh, yeah. Well done. Well done. Yesterday. Um. At our JASNA GCR chapter, they were both elected to the board as publicity director and program director. So I'm really proud of them. And I hope uh, more of our bonnets just like infiltrate the board. Yes. Just all over. The board of any literary society. Any, any literary society. Guys, do it. You have our support. Let us know what you need. If you need like campaign posters or, you know... Not money. We don't have any money, but we have hugs. I'm not a hugger. Well, so um, if you want to let us know (laughs) that you are running for your uh, board of choice um, and you want to do that via social media or email, then uh, then what would they do, Hannah? Well, you could uh, find us on the old Twitters and the old Instagram, couldn't you? At bonnets at dawn. You can email Lauren, who will send you PDF downloads of your campaign posters, uh, bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. Or you can join our Facebook group by searching bonnets at dawn, answering a couple of questions on there, basically proving that you listen to the podcast. And uh, and then we'll see you there. Yeah. It's a wild ride. How was that? I didn't mess (laughs) anything up this week. That's great. At bonnets at gmail at bonnets at gmail.com. Right. Exactly. Oh, and I should say one more thing. (laughs) Good Lord. Sorry. Um, Team Bronte shirts are for sale right now, guys. Oh, oh, Team Bronte shirts are for sale. They're really good. They're really good. You should buy one. Considering they're Team Bronte shirts. (laughs) They're great. I'm excited about them. Thank you to everyone who has purchased one so far. And um, if you guys want one, they are on sale until October 2nd. So get on it. Yeah. Get on it like a bonnet. Right? Okay. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Bye.